0: Today's special episode is an interview with Robert Pike, wherein we discuss his new book, Silent Village, Life and Death in Occupied France, which is about orador sur which experienced a Nazi massacre in 1944. Robert Pike is currently a Ph.D. student at Cardiff University. He graduated from the University of Exeter, where he studied history and French in 1998. His doctoral research is entitled, An Interdisciplinary Approach to Rural Resistance in Nazi-Occupied France. He is also the author of two books about occupied France, the first of these, Defying Vichy: Blood, Fear, and French Resistance, tells the story of the origins of the resistance in the Dordogne, while his second book is the topic of today's episode. Please enjoy. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Robert. You have a very interesting book which has just hit shelves, which is Silent Village, Life and Death in Occupied France, which tells a story that is, I think, pretty well known in France, but maybe not so much outside of France um, because it's been overshadowed by the Holocaust and other atrocities committed in World War II, can you please explain to us what happened at oradour sur
1: Yeah, thanks, Gary. Yeah, um, so it's interesting you say that it's probably not that well known. I think I think in like you say in France, it is very very well known. And I think um, I think it's it's one of those places it's almost a bit of a rite of passage when you when you go to france a lot of people a lot of, of of english and american german people go go there sort of on their way south on holiday but but what what happened was that just after d-day so d-day was the 6th of june 1944 and this was the 10th of june 1944 which was a saturday a saturday morning and uh in in france and. In those days, all, all the kids were at school, and it was a, it's a pretty much a normal working day. But the SS um, Panzer Division, Das Reich, um, or an ele- element of it, was sent into this village, Orodur. And, and you, it's important that we think about Orodur as being not just a village. It's kind of, it's, in French, they call it a, a commune. So it's lots of little villages and hamlets around it as well. It's kind of the central bourg. The, the, the villages were rounded up and the people in the fields sort of around it and then the farms around. And the, after a, a, a short, well, I say a short wait, it was probably a couple of hours, actually, when the, the population were told that, um, they, that these, these soldiers had reason to believe that, that there were arms hidden in, somewhere in the village. Then the men and the women were divided up. the, the, the women and the children were taken to uh, the church where they were locked in and, and the men into these six areas. they were barns and, and hangars and warehouses and things and and that's when the place was was or the people were massacred. So we, we think within about half an hour of each other that first of all the, the men were shot and um, and then afterwards, a uh, lots of combustible materials were put on top of them and, and and they were set on fire and then in the church um a box was brought into the church and uh again the doors were closed but this, this box was lit and out of it came this acrid smoke and and um kind of asphyxiated a lot of of the people there was panic and and, and then the the Germans sort of came into the church i say the germans i've got to be careful saying the germans actually because i'll come back to that in a bit but but it wasn't just german soldiers there was you know ss um soldiers came in and and fired at at the 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 remaining people and and then again the church was set on fire so you know it was a complete a complete massacre of of this this town's population and uh from from that church one woman managed to escape through through a window and uh through um from one of the barns, about I think it was six men escaped um miraculously. Uh one one of whom is is still alive uh, as we speak now. But well, well I suppose we'll come back to why it happened. Um but it was what the, the French tend to call now a sort of crime gratuite. So it was a little bit unexplained as as to why it happened other than it, it was a show of force really to, to the population that, that, that they had to not support the resistance that was happening in, in that part of France, that, that moment, particularly with D-Day having, you know, recently happened. So in a nutshell, that's kind of what happened and, and I suppose we'll go into a little bit more depth uh, a little bit later, I suppose. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. Your book is about the massacre, but it is much more than that. You detail what this village was like before World War II. You've touched on it a little bit, how it was more than just a village. Um, You even go back and make some forays into its medieval past. Can you tell us, in as much detail as you like, what this commune, this village was like?
1: Yeah, I mean, it was... You know this is a a village that had been there for a, a thousand years and uh, you know actually' it 's not even the first kind of massacre that had taken place there there had been um you know during the during the wars of religion there there' had been something um, which i don 't have a lot of detail about but but there had been a, a kind of a battle there and, and the, the the village the, some of the villages had 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 been killed at that time but yeah so this this is a a, a, a normal um village so it's about I suppose 12 miles or so west of Limoges so we're talking just south of central France I suppose if you want to want to say that not not that far from from Bordeaux and kind of on the way to Clermont-Ferrand if you go that way so it was a a normal village Um, it's a very uh, even though the city of Limoges is quite nearby in fact there was a tram that that went between the two places even though it was very close to that you were into the countryside and uh, it was a very sort of rural environment uh, a very agricultural place I I wouldn't say it was a particularly poor village for that part of France and the reason is because of that tram um, it had good links to a city so that there were five tram lines that came out from Limoges and so what that meant was villagers could go into the city to to work. Honestly, I suppose like a commuter a commuter town these days, the farmers could go in and sell their, their wares in, in the city, in the in the um marketplaces, and people then from the city could come out to this village. And they did on on the weekends. You know, it was it was a pleasant place to go, and there were some nice hotels and, and and restaurants and cafes and bars and things there. So it was quite well known for being a nice a nice place to go on the weekends. And people used to take the the tram and travel out and and go fishing in the glen. Uh, they used to go swimming in the glen. It had a good sort of mix of shops. Most most of you know all the, the services for that for that particular community we're all based in this central bourg of Ogodor and uh some you know reasonably big places nearby Saint-Junien just down the road as well um it had a, it had everything you probably would need really you wouldn't need to go very far out of Ogodor it had bakers and it had patisseries it had several butchers it had A post office and a tramway station you know and even banks and places where you could buy agricultural materials places where you could buy fuel and and several garages so it really was a it it wasn't a very very poor place but at the same time we were just at that point where farmers would living around the the village a lot of them were tenant farmers um so they they kind of would change farm every year or a couple of years, and it was about kind of just making enough to get by those 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 farmers that lived just outside the village and really in within Ordo itself, there were some buildings that were a little bit more sort of bourgeois, so it was a real mix it was a, a real mix of people and um politically. It, it It was um there, there were there were two um, I suppose, political characters that that lived there. One was called Joseph Beau, and he was a socialist and uh, a conservative called called Desotto, Paul Desotto. Paul Desorto came from a line of a kind of a bourgeois line of they were all doctors, and um he had he had been mayor a couple of times, but he'd never actually been elected. he It kind of got passed down when his when his father died. Whereas people tended to prefer the socialist list and actually Joseph beau who owned a grocery shop um, was was quite popular so um, he when he got the chance to be elected actually easily won the election and then when Paul de Sotto went off to to actually he first covered when pulled went off to fight and then he he kept sort of beating him in elections and then there was this time when in 1941 when Petain had come come to power when really they found an excuse to to, to move him out really and uh and and put paul disotto back into into power so there was this 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 kind of strange. there was this socialist I, I think it was more of a socialist place but like a lot of places in france at this time there was a an element of conservatism which was always there and i kind of i guess where the money lied a mix of of a lot of different types of people in this one little place
0: after the germans destroyed the village de gaulle ordered its ruins left alone and it became an embodiment of a typical french village that symbolized france's ordeal during the war now you've touched on this a bit but you argue that it was not necessarily uh, the standard French village. Can you explain why?
1: Yeah, I mean th- that's something I didn't say at the start. Actually, was was this I, this decision to maintain these th- th- this this wreck, this empty shell of of, of a village, uh, which was a decision made by De Gaulle. And I think it, th- there's a lot of different theories as to why you know he did this, but he was trying to bring uh, this this. Representation of what France had endured, as you said in the question, everything that France had been through was going to be kind of represented as being a, a martyrdom. There, there, you know, there were some awkward questions after the war. Certainly, um, you know, communism w- w- was doing relatively well, and De Gaulle needed to put a lid on on that, and he ne- he needed to to demonstrate or to show to the world that France um, had suffered in in this occupation and he didn't want to sort of dwell on on any of the 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 idea that there had been collaboration or or some of the things that we learned about during the 70s and 80s he obviously didn't want to dwell on on that so this idea of a martyr was i suppose um there's something religious about it and and i personally i don't I don't particularly like the idea of this being a, a martyred village. You know, this 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 was a village which um, which happened to be in the wrong place at the, ro- at the at the wrong time. You know, and there were all sorts of people living in this village. And some, yes, you could say, well, they were all doing things that that that, that could mark them out as a martyr in future. Some some not. You know, some some were not particularly um, well behaved. Let's say during the occupation. And then there were the vast majority, like in the middle, doing what they could just to get by. So, so martyrdom is is for me a a strange kind of kind of use of the term, and, and it's still described as a, as as you know, village martyr when you arrive there. But what he wanted to show, you know, th- this this kind of worked quite well for him. This this I- idyllic place. There were lots of postcards that existed in Ojodur prior to to the to the massacre, you know, and it, it showed a very nice. Very French, normal place, and like I said, it it didn't have a bad economy for a village of its size. It was, you know, relatively prosperous with with some really nice. I forgot to say some really nice restaurants, really well known restaurants. People used to come there for 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 this kind of thing. But did it symbolise France's ordeal during the war? This is this is kind of the point. It it it, it did it did in a way. Because it was just a normal, you know, I kind of took this with this book. I halfway through it. I well, it takes almost half the book to actually get to the massacre because I'm I'm really looking at this kind of cross section of society and looking at what was there, you know. And yeah, I I wouldn't argue against the idea that it is a normal or it was a normal place. You know, it was fairly normal, fairly well to do. Did it represent a typical French village? However as people might have seen before the war or might imagine a typical French village to be. No, because during the occupation period, a heck of a lot of changed in Ovidor. There had been a a huge influx of, of refugees and evacuees. All sorts of things changed during that period. So... Lives changed, and the political landscape changed. The ways people made their money changed. Although I wouldn't say it wasn't a typical French village, because I think everywhere changed. I would I would have said that it was potentially used as this idyllic place. And like anywhere in France, if you kind of pick it apart, you'll find the sort of you'll you'll find the the they're the, not the these sort of unsavory elements that, that were there, just like anywhere else.
0: Your book is a number of things. It is a story of Orador, but it is also something of a biography of four individuals you interviewed, Robert Ibra, André Desorteau, Camille Senon, and Albert Vallad. Can you tell us about these people?
1: Well, when I when I went to Orador, I went a number of times to to try and, um, you know, kind of write write this. I was helped by various members of staff at the Centre de la Mémoire um, in aurodor sur and, and I said, yeah, I, I knew of this, this one particular person who would escaped the, the actual shootings themselves. And that was Robert Desprez. Um He's he's written a number of, of books. And if you've been to Aurodor, you'll have picked up something with his name on or his photo. So I, I knew about Robert Eprat and I, I, I was aware he was still alive. I'd feel, I'd first been to Bordeaux back in 1993, so you know I kind of I was quite surprised to find out he was still alive. But 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 I asked um, someone um, called uh, Sandra Giboin who helped me at um, at the Centre de la Memoire. She um, she and I sort of said, do you think you could set up an interview? And I was thinking, well, he's probably fed up now of meeting people and talking about his, his experiences. And and she said, yeah, no problem, I can get an interview with him, you know and. In the meantime, what about these other people? Uh, so I was thrilled to be able to meet these other people. And what was interesting about it is that, well, first of all, Andre Desorto, if, if you walk the, the main street of Ordeur sur glan you'll see that it's the Rue Emile de, um, Desorto. Now, that was um, Andre Desorto's grandfather. No, great grandfather, sorry. What's interesting about him is I mentioned Joseph Beau, the socialist, and who, who had been mayor, and Paul Desorto um who is andre um, desortos grandfather that the fact that these two were political rivals didn't particularly like each other at all they really didn't and um andre uh grandfather paul um had a, a, a five sons i think and one of those sons turned out to have had uh or had a relationship with joseph Beau's daughter she fell pregnant this was have kind of a big scandal in or so much of a scandal that what would have been you know if a, a desotto getting married you know would have been a big society event but these this 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 couple in a kind of Romeo and Juliet scenario was sent off to to live in Limoges to have the baby and get married quietly in limoges and that child was Andre Desorto. and they were able to come back to ordor um when they were married and they were having their second child, a, 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 a sister. So very interesting to be able to talk to André Zoptog. Because I, I knew I, I knew about him, but I didn't know that he was still alive. And again, I was able to go and meet him and his wife and, and spend the afternoon. And the man is encyclopedia, encyclopedia. You know, he's like an sorry, like an encyclopedia of this this village. And then you had Camille Senon. Again, um, I knew about her, although I didn't, I hadn't put two and two together because people in France at this time used to use different names. She's actually um, Marguerite, but, but she went by the name of Camille and I'd kind of seen her testimony. And so I put them together and I went to met her. Um, Sandra very kindly arranged the interview and, and it was very, very moving. Um, she's an amazing woman and and what she had been on one of the trams that had arrived um in Orodor um as the massacre was taking place because she lived she her family lived in Ordore she lived in Limoges during the week and came back to Ordore in the um on the, the weekend evening just to have you know some family time and she was one of a group of people who were lined up um, next next to a hole that was being dug, and they were basically told that was for them. Um, this this grave, this mass grave, was going to be for them. And for some strange reason, later on that evening, after a long, long wait, they were they were let go. So she had an an interesting perspective on 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 life, kind of between Limoges and Bordeaux. And then we had Albert Vallad, who unfortunately died. Um, I think it was December twenty nineteen. He died, um, but he his his again slightly different uh, viewpoint was he he was the son of a of a, a tenant farmer in one of these little hamlets around Ecuador, and he had this 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 uh, again amazing knowledge about all the different people in these villages and he on that on that day had been just outside the village when um he had been with his cows tending the cows in the field and um a piece of paper kind of but there were bits and ash ash falling at, at his feet and one of these pieces of paper was from one of the the catechism books that um that they used at the church and he knew you know he could see that this was true the church was burning he lost his sister had gone into um, to try and pick up two of um, her four children and he lost she she never returned and neither did those children so where well, this this wide range of experiences coming just coming back to Robert Ebra as well you know he's written down his experience of the day of being shot and of escaping the fires and just an amazing escape with these five other other people that last this escape lasted all day you know it was he was in a a terrible state when he you know finally got got away but again he lost sisters his mother and um but i'd heard his story a lot and so what was interesting was sitting down with him and talking to him about life before and again he was someone who had he he was working in limoges and kind of coming back to ordo just on the weekends and he shouldn't have been there that day he was one of the very few who was quite laid back about the germans arriving because he had lots of experience with them so there were four really interesting people with different viewpoints and um you know I, I, unfortunately these people are disappearing I, you know we've lost albert already and you know it's great to sort of get their get their view of things down while we while we still can really
0: Today's episode is brought to you by Factor. Factor provides fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted meals that are ready to eat in just two minutes. Factor includes a variety of plans, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto, among others. Factor is perfect for a busy routine, with high-quality, healthy food that fits into your daily schedule. Mouth-watering dishes like chicken and mushroom tetrazzini, cavatappi and Italian-style pork ragu, and artichoke and spinach chicken are all on this week's menu, and you don't want to miss out on those. In addition to savory meals, Factor offers snacks and wellness shots, the latter of which has become a personal favorite of mine. Go to com slash FrenchHistory50 and use the code French History 50 to get 50% off Factor Meals. That again is factormeals.com slash FrenchHistory50 and use the code French History 50 Sign up today. Your stomach will thank you. Let's start with the war. France falls and Orador is part of Vichy under Marshal Pétain. How did the war change life?
1: It was it, it changed a lot. This is perhaps where people can get this misconception when they go into a door and they see the you know, and they, they, they learn about the places and, and what was there, you know, that there was restaurants and hotels and things like that. I mean, firstly, even those hotels before before the, the war, um, they, they weren't necessarily full of holidaymakers like they would be now. They were called hôtels de voyageurs, so they were basically full of tradesmen trying to sell things like sewing machine things. But but put, putting that all that to, a, to one side, what you had in, in France at, the, at this moment, and we kind of have to track back just before the war, is you had these waves of, of, of newcomers to the region. This is something I'm researching at the moment, actually. And... and just before a war broke out, the, the the government put into place that that there was going to be this evacuation of Alsace-Lorraine, or certain parts of Alsace-Lorraine, particularly around Strasbourg. And so you had a lot of people coming south, and and through this amazing, I have to say, the administration of it was was amazing, um, considering you had no computers and things like that. A lot of people came south, and and Ordo, um and and all the villages around. Uh, were were sort of allocated a village or a couple of villages to, to have people living, you know, and they whether there was any free accommodation in the hotel rooms or the ballrooms of the hotels were filled up with sort of mattresses and people's homes. You know, people had to just have people in their homes living, and so these people came to to Ordo and, and, and so you, so you had that first of all. Now, now a lot of those people then could go back. When uh, after France fell, they could go back to um, their original homes, and a lot did. But the people that were left behind primarily were Jewish people, and and this part of France just didn't had hadn't really come across very many Jewish people. But but certain families stayed behind because of that. But then you had a second wave because France had fallen. During that 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 period, you had uh, a lot of people coming from all over Roubaix. Paris, all sorts of, you know, kind of Avignon and places like this where, where pe- people were coming, um, You had a family coming over from Bayonne a little bit later, and, and looking for, for somewhere away from the war because geographically, Oudor is, a, you know, a long way from where the fighting, you know, was going on. So people had, had, had ended up there, and again, a lot of people went back, some people stayed. A few people stayed, you know, a minority. And then, um, sorry, tracking back even further, even before the outbreak of, of the war, nineteen sort of thirty-six to thirty-eight, you'd had quite a lot of Spanish people come in there, Spanish people who had come over from um uh, to sort of fleeing Franco's uh kind of march northwards. And uh so so Again, it's another different story, really. But but a lot of Spanish had been interned, and then there were these 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 sort of camps. These uh, they're called on, um GTE, um de Travail and these were camps which Spanish people would put into, and their their families sort of followed them. And then they, it was kind of like forced labour. Some sometimes Jews were put into them a bit later as well. And there was one of these actually in or just literally half a kilometre outside. So so you'd have these people coming as well. And you also had then, uh, you had people, a second wave of Alsace-Lorraine from the Moselle region. And these were people, when, when uh, that area was annexed, well, not exactly annexed, but it was kind of occupied by, by the, the Nazis, anyone, the, the, the Francophone elements of those areas were, were sent away, they were expelled. And again, they were given a place to go to. They were told head south and go to this place. And and, and uh, we had another wave of people arriving from two villages, this time in the Moselle. And, and this time these people you know, were given no, no clue that they'd ever be able to go back. And so these were there sort of permanently. And, and we ended up then having a school built for these refugees. So as well as men going off to fight, we had some people in prisoner of war camps. Uh, you, you, so you had a kind of a change of the population then you had restrictions coming in as as the war kind of progressed the occupation i should say progressed and the war elsewhere went on and germany continued to fight this the arrangement between Pétan and hitler was that there was this was going to be a kind of collaboration in terms of like a partnership but as it as it turned out you know hitler had no plans of that type France was going to be a a stalker you know, for the Reich. So, people, life life just got harder. People food got harder to come by. You know, you had things like rationing, um, problems uh, with so for example, a lot of um, as well as the arable farming. There's a lot of sort of meat produced, cow meat in in, in this part of France. A lot of those sort of beasts were being sent off. Uh, to Germany so it was really hitting the economy plus all these restaurants and cafes and and places like that you know the restaurants had to close because they 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 couldn't they couldn't run and also the hotels were full of refugees you know all they could do was just kind of keep ticking along. Pétain announced when the war ended you know you know and and collaboration this period of collaboration started that, that dancing was no longer allowed you know people had to sort of mourn France's defeat uh, so things really changed quite rapidly, and, and um, strangely enough, in Oaxaca the food thing wasn't such an issue as it was in the cities. In in the cities, in the big shops, things disappeared from the shelves, whereas in these villages you have farmers nearby. And actually, those farmers around the outside of these villages actually started to thrive because they, they could just produce a little bit more of what they'd been producing before. And you had clandestine kind of butchering of, of meat and you had food available in these villages that, that, that perhaps you couldn't get elsewhere. So that meant that people started to come out to villages and, and, to try and to try and get things for that reason, which is why there were quite a few people from outside of Ovidor, there that Saturday, they weren't there to play for pleasure-seeking purposes. They were there to try and get food.
0: On the eleventh of November, nineteen forty-two, Germany occupied Vichy France and squeezed the country to support its war against the USSR. How did this second phase change Oradour?
1: Do you know what? I don't think it did change Oradour very much at all. I don't think it really affected Orador. Um Strangely, you, you talk to any of the survivors and the only the only time that anyone had seen a German soldier in Orodur prior to the massacre um, was that night, the 11th of November 1942, when um, one of the main roads ran fairly close to Orodur and apparently some soldiers passed through. Other than that, no one saw any soldier in Orodur during the occupation period. No soldier, no Gestapo, no milice, People just didn't see them. They didn't come to these places. People like Robert Ebrard and Camille Senon had experience of seeing people in Limoges, um, some of the bigger towns where the German kind of, I suppose, put... Well, Limoges being a very big place, actually, there were a lot of Germans in Limoges, and there were some kind of satellite posts elsewhere in in, in the Dordogne, in in the Dordogne and Limousin, and, and places like that, but but a place like 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 this, um, like Ochodos no one saw any soldiers. What did change, though, after that period, was that Germany realised they needed more men, more manpower, because you know they had this second front they'd opened up. Um, and they needed all the i said they inv- obviously they invaded the the, um, the USSR and then they started to realize that they needed a, a lot more kind of military um, manpower. so their manpower was going to the military, and then they realized they, had, they needed manpower for, for their factories and things. so there was this negotiation between the, the Vichy government, uh, Laval in particular and uh, uh, of trying to get frenchmen to go and women actually but primarily frenchmen of of a certain age to go and, and work in germany and it, it started off as something called le relève which was um a kind of a swap where you get one prisoner of war back for three volunteers who went off and worked in in germany and it just it just didn't work you know it didn't it didn't work because people didn't want to go but also because the the so the people that they were sending back were generally people who were ill and they were not going to be very good for the french economy anyway so so a new thing was was uh, negotiated which was um which was called STO which is service de travail obligatoire and this was kind of a tranche of the young men of of, of france of occupied of the, what was the occupied zone from uh, prior to that and this was february 1943 so a year after le Relève had been launched and this now was no longer um, obli- uh, this was no longer kind of a, a volunteer thing. This was obligatory. So at this point, men started to hide. Young men started to hide, and, and we know that in Orodosso-Glan on the day of the massacre, there were there were a number of men hiding out. They survived, apart from one of, one of them. So you had that happening, and and what this also did was. We'd had the formation of this this resistance happening. Now the resistance started off as kind of a political thing. It wasn't really uh, it, the only armed resistance groups were based around former kind of soldiers that had been decommissioned and in, out, out in in forests and things like that. And but suddenly you had um, a lot of men who were hiding out and needed something to do or wanted to to to, to respond in some way. So you had. These what what became known as Maquis groups, the the sort of the guerrilla fighters, the guerrilla resistance, and you had a com you had communist Maquis FTP, and then you also had these Gaullist Maquis, and and at this point you were getting more men going to the Maquis than 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 the Maquis could kind of handle or feed or or arm. So so that I think affected France this part of France more than than the occupation did because like I say you wouldn't see a German soldier unless you went into a large town or a city and they were being well behaved at that point Uh, you know there was no things were getting requisitioned vehicles were getting requisitioned fuel was running out people were having to use bicycles and even then bicycle tires started to run out so things were changing but it was all stuff which you know, didn't have a huge impact on people's lives. What did impact on people's lives was when, you know, your 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 older brother or your son was suddenly called up and expected to go in and work in, in Germany.
0: On the 10th of June, 1944, the SS Division Das Reich arrived at Orador-Serglen. What happened that day?
1: So what, what had been going on was uh, in the region around um, this 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 part of France was being nicknamed uh, La Petite Russie, um, Little Russia, because it 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 was there was so much of this kind of guerrilla fighting, which which had started up by that point, and the the the, the soldiers, not 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 just the das Reich, but lots of different um, battalions were being attacked and things. And guerrilla fighters, you know, they wouldn't face a, an army. Full on, what they would do is they'd attack from behind and retreat into the tree. So there there was this kind of stuff going on. You also had at this point, because you'd had D Day, certain towns and smaller towns were, you had Mackie groups, particularly the communist groups, because the communists just wanted to get on with fighting, whereas the Gaullist groups were being told, they were more organized, they were being told to wait, wait until you're told to, to act. But in in some of the the, the towns in this part of the world, Guerre, Toul, um, you had examples of communist groups going in and trying to, um, and very briefly, liberating um, these these smaller places because what had been left behind there were just sort of um, centuries of, of Wehrmacht, older, not such elite troops. So they were easily overcome. But then, in the south, in around the Montauban region, you had this this beast waiting. It was it was the, the SS Das Reich division, and it, this this enormous division had been fighting in Eastern Europe and um, where it carried out all sorts of atrocities. Now, it had also suffered a lot of losses, and it was waiting in in this southern part of France to to know what to do next. A lot of new recruits had been trained up in the Bordeaux area and they were kind of joining. And a lot of these recruits, it has to be said, not only were they very young, but a lot of them weren't coming from Germany, they were coming from France. So a lot of them were forced trans- forced conscripts from Alsace-Lorraine, you know, from France. So this this division was being brought together to be of you know a, a comparable strength to what it had been before machinery transport was being fixed and then it was given orders now a misconception is that the Das Reich was told quickly you know we've had D-Day get to Normandy as quickly as you possibly can and this was the understanding for quite a long time and that the the the, the resistance had this 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 really good kind of Record of slowing them down, but actually, what they were told is, make your way north, but we want you to deal with this problem area of France first. So, in these places that had been liberated by the communist groups, suddenly you had these kind of almost firefighting uh, little divi- not divisions, but battalions from the Das Reich being sent in and quelling these problems. So, in Toul, the day before the Orador massacre, that had been liberated. Das Reich arrived and put won the town back. And ninety nine men were hanged from lampposts. Another hundred and fifty odd was deported just because of what had happened in Toul as, as reprisals. In um, in a place called Guerre, you had a, a similar thing had happened. So again, Das Reich sent in. That was quelled twenty two young Makizar fighters were brutally murdered and and so this kind of thing was happening a lot and 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 the das Reich was trying to put down these little insurrections and they were dealing with this they were going to try and hit hard before going north so this order had come come out that 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 somewhere had to be hit hard, and this has been kind of contested ever since but but the the orders there in black and white you know, somewhere was going to suffer and was going to be made an example of, as had been the the, mo- the, the way that things were done in, in Eastern Europe. So a place was chosen. And again, there are arguments about why Orador was chosen. Personally, I think it's fairly clear. Um, there was a little bit of an insurrection in saint junian which is just down the road, a, a slightly bigger place. And so the Das Reich were kind of sent there or elements of it. And that was easily dealt with. And I think the idea might have been that they were going to do this to saint junien Now, I think when they got there, they realized saint junien was a bit too big for that. So they called in some local sort of militia, um, kind of local French policemen, if you like, and they had meetings. And I think this is perhaps the point at which Someone French along the way probably pointed out that this place, Orredor-sur-Glan, it's going to be easy to surround. It's just about the right size. There's no Mackie nearby. There's no resistance known to be in Orredor-sur-Glan. So you shouldn't be getting any any fight back at all. You can do it calmly and gently. And that's what they did. They set off just after lunch and, and as I said earlier on, surrounded the place, arrested... or. Did this very calm roundup, got people into this village, onto this village green, and then they carried out the massacre as I described before. And then the place was set alight. Anyone who came and tried to sort of collect their children or whatever, they were killed on the spot. Some cyclists who were passing through, they were killed too. It it kind of, I think it, I think it was probably um, I think what the, the the German the German High Command did was they made sure that the person on the ground commanding the operation was a bit of a nutcase. In terms of he he just he just seemed to like this kind of operation, and fortunately he got killed in in, in Normandy a few weeks later, and 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 so they had their perfect scapegoat. You know they started blaming him for what had happened in Ordor. Oh, it was it, he he went above and beyond his orders, but. There's no real evidence of that, but what we, what people don't tend to know as well is that it didn't kind of end on that one day. Centuries um, were left there so that people couldn't get back, and then over the next sort of forty-eight hours, soldiers kept coming back and making sure, burning down any places that that had been left over, disposing of any bodies that were lying in the street. This is where and anyone who's been to Ohudua will know about this, you know, bodies were found in ovens and down, down a well and, and things like that. It was probably at that point that, that these bodies were disposed of in that way. And, and this is the really heartbreaking thing. The, the, the point of the destruction of Hodo, as far as I can see, was to actually erase not just the buildings of this place, but the whole this whole community. So they wanted to make any... They wanted to make sure that no none of these remains were identifiable. So they actually made these again the, the fires, these horrible fires. They they then transferred these bodies into mass graves. And and they did that before they let any villagers into the into the village to try and reclaim their loved ones. So it, you know it was a it wasn't something that lasted for. Twelve, twenty-four hours. It lasted for several days before anyone could start making sense of this. And um, more people arrived than we perhaps. We, we, we know that six got out of the got out of the, the barn. One woman got out of the church. She was a grandmother. A miraculous escape. There were others that had been hiding out. People who knew that they were kind of perhaps under surveillance by Vichy for being communist or for being Jewish or whatever. And some people had fled, so we had probably had about twenty or thirty other survivors. But generally, everyone who was rounded up pretty much was killed. So, six hundred and forty-three people from Alsace-Lorraine, French, Spanish, Italian, we had all sorts of people there on that day. And there was no checking of identity documents. There was no, um, oh well, if you're a collaborator, you're going to be okay. You know, the Desotto mayor, who was a who was a Petanese. There was no distinction made. You know, they they, they all suffered the same, the same fate. And the idea was that there would be no witnesses.
0: Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. ba 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 Afterwards, there were a number of important trials and inquiries of Germans and French collaborators. Who was held accountable for the massacre?
1: This, this is something which goes into a... Uh, a lo- quite a long story, but essentially no one was made accountable for door. What the Germans tried to say was that this person, um Adolf Dickmann, who had been in charge on the on the ground on the day, was the person that had kind of gone ab- above what he'd been told to do. So he was made into a bit of a scapegoat and 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 the the das Reich closed ranks. You know, they're very much kind of this is our story, we'll pretty much stick to it. They hadn't quite got this story right at that point because some some of the soldiers on the day had said that they thought, you know, this was because um, a major had been kidnapped nearby, and and that that bit was true, but it was a major, but that would happen a long way away from all actually, and that, that didn't really contribute to to, to to what happened on the day. So, but anyway, there, there were various little stories like that going around, or that there had been arms discovered in Ordor or that you know some there had been some soldiers killed just outside Oradour. So these soldiers, go, these these things were going around, and and we know that that the Germans hadn't got their, or the, the the Das Reich hadn't got their story straight at that point. But then they closed ranks, and they closed ranks, and they stuck to this story that it was Dickman who, who was who was responsible, who'd kind of gone above his order, and then over time. Uh, f- 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 certain pr- people have been taken prisoner. So um, some German prisoners were identified as having been in Oredor. And also some, some of these Alsace-Lorraine men who had been there on the day because a lot of the firing had been done by men who were French, who were from Alsace-Lorraine. And this, this started to cause problems because uh, they organised this trial, a trial, That was that would eventually take place in Bordeaux in 1953, and what this was was a military tribunal. So whoever they'd identified and actually had in their grasp already were brought to trial on that day, on those sorry, on that week. And um, unfortunately, we we you know we kind of the investigators did identify who who was further. at the chain of command, but they were out of reach. They had gone back to Germany, and we know that, um, for example, the the general commander of the Das Reich, General Lammerding became a, a wealthy industrialist in in um, I can't remember which which I think it was Düsseldorf, perhaps, but one of the German cities, and, and lived a you know quite a, a long life afterwards. And as was the case with with the other commanders the, the people higher so the people who were tried in bordeaux were actually just they were the foot soldiers and this is kind of the tragic thing about about that trial now during the trial there were all sorts of legality and uh, sort of legal arguments going on as, as to how this was going to going to go forward because people in alsace lorraine were really unhappy about this trial taking place because they were saying well these people who were being tried, these boys, as they were, they were 17- or 18-year-old boys when all happened. Now, regardless of the fact that they, that they fired, they were there because they were forced to be there. They fired because if they didn't fire, you know, they would have been uh, you know, shot themselves, or they had to join the SS because otherwise their families would be deported. And these, this group of people, this group of men, or across the board, people who had been forced into into the SS were called malgré nous, which kind of translates as "despite us." And um, it kind of it, it, what this what this did was it, it created a real tension between Alsace Lorraine and the people of the Limousin. So during this trial, these men that had been brought, they, 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 they were. They were, set, they were all sentenced. Um, only one man from Alsace-Lorraine joined um, by of his own accord, and he, he he was proved of having killed people, and he was given a, a longer sentence. Um, some of the the Germans had slightly longer sentences, and and they, they were all sentenced. In fact, so some of them were sentenced, including the, the, this this one from Alsace-Lorraine, were sentenced to death. Actually, and then most of them had kind of long prison sentences, but then. There was such an uproar in Alsace-Lorraine over the course of several days, really. It only took days that the Parliament, the Assemblée Nationale, um, voted and voted to kind of commute the sentences. And Anyone who'd be sentenced to death, it was a reduced life imprisonment or, you know, a lot of these men then had their pretty much their, their sentences turned over because they'd already been held for long enough that you know they didn't need to serve any more time and this created a huge so what Alsace Lorraine had been incredibly angry and now the people of the Limousin were very angry because these were the only people to whom they were you know that were having justice served upon them but but this was being taken away from them whereas and and we knew that the the people who were really commanded this were being protected in Germany because France made this policy you know you could not you of oh what in fact it was germany really but it was an accord this kind of in the, in the interest of entente you weren't going to be um sending these these people for for, for war crime offenses so even though general Lamading was sentenced to death it was in abstention. he was in germany and he was never going to be sent to france for trial you know, this went on for, for years. And in fact, when Lamadin died, um, and I found this in the, in the archives just a couple of weeks ago, the, the French papers had to um, publish a photograph of, him, of his body on a deathbed to prove to the people of Limousin that he was actually dead um, and that he hadn't just been kind of, you know, whisked off to, to an even better life. So there was a real feeling, and there remains a real feeling that that really no one really was made to suffer for what happened on 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 this day, and it came under the umbrella of you know the, the Germans kind of almost the rules of war was that reprisals were allowed, you know. So what happened in Toul the night before when the 99 men were hanged from lampposts was legal in the rules of war Oh, as long as it was a reprisal was i suppose although it was over the top you know the Germans wanted to keep this narrative that it had been a legal act of war and so they had to stick to their story and we know that it wasn't it was a it was a war crime as this division had had conducted elsewhere in, in Europe. So it a very unsatisfactory element. And even now, you know, you speak to Robert Ebois and he's still sad that no one has been made to pay. There was one other trial in 1983 in Berlin, a guy called Heinz Bart, who'd been a little bit further up at the command. And he had again had been living in East East Berlin. No, sorry, West Berlin. No, he'd been living in East Berlin, sorry. And he'd been kind of protected in the interest of Entente. And they tried him and he was given a, a long sentence. But again, he, he got out after about 10 years um, and died in his bed, which made people in this part of France incredibly angry.
0: One thing you touch on is how Orador is not fixed in history, but is consistently rediscovered. What does Orador mean today?
1: someone who, who's who been um, dealing with this a lot is is someone called Hannah Diamond who's, who was responsible for um, the recent displays in the Musée Jean-Moulin in Paris. She was talking to me about this the other day. The idea of the museum is is kind of changing and Aurodor kind of changes in that way. Um, the, the kind of the scrapbook type museum has become something where a narrative needs to be Needs to be told because people, the people who were there at the time and could stand in that museum and could talk you through what, what life was like and not there anymore. And suddenly people have to be able to find their way through the story. Now, a similar thing has happened in Oudor. Um, When you used to go there, even when I went there as a teenager in, in the early 90s, you still had guides that were, that were taking people around and the, the fact that they linked their own story to these surroundings. They could talk about what was there in front of people. There was a sort of materiality to it. There was, there was a, you could almost touch, touch the story. And I think now, now that those last people have gone and Robert Ebra up until last year was, was still taking people around, you know, groups of children. And I think groups of children who got that experience had a very different experience to groups of children who were just shown around or just looked around and tried to follow the signs and the guidebooks. So I think now we've got this this same thing in 1999 um, an exhibition center was opened. In our which tries to tell the story leading up to the massacre and, and what then happened on the day. So whereas if you'd visited in the 1960s or 70s you would still have seen the the sewing machines and the the the, the rubble if you like now the place i always think and people have argued with me on this but i think it sort of looks more like a sort of medieval you know if you've been to to a to a to a castle in in wales you'll see the same thing you know kind of recognizable buildings but with a lot of grass over you know having overgrown it so i think it's it's losing that sense of materiality and 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 you have to go into um like a little crypt by the by the cemetery to to see what i think are the really interesting things which are the little watches that stopped and you know the toys that were gathered and the the, as i said the sewing machines and 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 the money that and the wallets you know you, you could easily miss that so I, th- I think in terms of, of the, the visitor to the, to the site, and I know that now, Opador, the Centre de la Memoire, is reorganizing its, its visit to try and bring some of that materiality back in to show what life was like so that it doesn't look too much like a medieval kind of site. It's still very shocking, don't get me wrong, because it's very recognizable what things are. But I this is kind of my own thinking that, that it is going to continue to overgrow and the rust on the car and things like that is going to continue to sort of degrade the place. It can't last forever as, as it is. In terms of its place in the in the historiography, if you like, I think that's slightly different again. And I think it it lived this life as the village martyr that de Gaulle wanted. It represented that 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 place. Um, it represented the rest of France as being the the one place that that had suffered under under this Nazi um, oppression and had given its own life. But I think now, now, um, now that the resistance, the occupation period has been reassessed, you know, I think it's time to sort of give these people their kind of names back, rather than having this collective martyrdom. You know, I think it's an opportunity to sort of say, well, you know, these people lost their lives that day. Let's let's know let's know a bit more about who they are. And, and there's something that I remember I've started doing that by having a kind of gallery of, of photographs. It's kind of what I wanted to do with this book was to try and and, and reconstitute what this village was. You know, I take you through the, the, the massacre as well, but I kind of feel like the massacre. You know, that, that event means a lot more when you understand who these people were and what they were doing and why they were doing it. And I think, really, it, it you know, it needs to move on from being a, a place of, of of pilgrimage, if you like, of this of, to, for this martyrdom, to a place of learning. You know, we, we, yes, we can learn about the war and we can learn about the occupation and we can learn about what happened there on that day, and that mustn't be forgotten, don't get me wrong. But I think we also can use it as a place. I, I, I like to think of it as, you know, a place frozen in time, a bit like Pompeii. You know, how much have we learned about Roman times by looking at Pompeii? Uh, and as we've, as we've lost this, as we're losing these last few people who we are able to talk about what life was like in that, at that moment in time, then I think Ohodor can serve that purpose too and we can we can see you know for example there's this this there's buildings there you know do, do, do we know a, a puizattier you know someone who used to dig wells you know where you've got the sabotier which is the person who used to make the clogs <laughs> you know we, there's a lot we can learn about about just what life was like the charron the wheelwright who used to make the the the, the, the wheels for the uh for the um, wagons and then you've You've also got the fact that it can teach us a lot about Vichy France because we can know that this family were this sort of family. This, this was a Jewish family. This was a family from the Moselle. This is linked to, to the evacuation. This is a family who came from Roubaix, and they came during another time. This, this girl um, had been sent from Paris to be safe during the war. So, so by giving them their, their names back, we can kind of understand what, what was going on in this place as well and it can teach us a lot more because it was a fairly typical place but it can teach us a lot more about what life in vichy france was really like does that answer your question
0: i think it does thank you very much for being on the show the book is silent village life and death in occupied france this has been enlightening thank you As always, donations keep the podcast going, so if you would like to make a one-time donation or become a patron, please consider doing so. Thank you very much for your continued support. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McKrispie Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day.